We're here with uh, Samuel Chisichetti from A Reasonable Christianity Q&A. Good afternoon, Samuel. How are you? Good afternoon. I am well, thank you. How are you? I'm really well too. Um, We had uh, a couple of weeks where we were looking at um, sexuality and culture mm-hmm. and what the what the Bible teaches. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a, a, a bit of a discussion relating between what is happening in the world and what the world thinks and how people are thinking yep. um, who don't have God as their focus and then what the Bible teaches and what, what Christians believe. Yes. So that actually leads us to the ultimate question. Yes. Is there a God? Mm-hmm. So... We are going to have a bit of a discussion, a discussion type thing for the next uh, week or two or however long it takes because it is a big subject and it is your favourite subject. It is the subject. It is the most important (laughs) subject. Um, And I I think um, a lot of people are looking looking for that as a definition, even those that, that don't believe. They are trying to understand why Christians believe what they believe. They're trying to understand what is God, who is God, how does God Work uh, and all yeah. of that sort of stuff. So, a definition of God um, is probably a good place to start. Yes. Now, um, thank you very much for uh, for uh, the way you, you framed it. You remember, as we finished last week, we were saying at the core of the issue, you've got the culture that says the self is the starting point, and the biblical view that says God is the starting point. And so, and then it leads to the question: Well, you know, what do you mean? God, what do you mean? And so I think that what do you mean by God is the, the biggest question. Whenever we've seen the rise of atheism, for example, in in Australia, at the last census, not only the rise of atheism, agnosticism, and uh, people who actually just say, well, I'm not religious. Well, I really don't believe there's a God. So that has been increasing. And, and you're coming, we're coming from a culture where, you know, people used to, you know, believe in God, it was not even a, it, it wasn't questioned. No, that's right. Yeah, so you know, the belief in God wasn't questioned at all. It was just assumed and it was there. And so now suddenly people have started to ask questions and they have had no satisfactory answer. And that then leads to, you know, the challenge of, you know, should I believe in something I don't understand? Mm. And so our culture's gone that way. On, on that basis, but the the way uh, to, uh, to to look at this is to first of all know, because many many believers, many Christians don't actually probably know this, because they go to church, you get a sermon, you know, it's sort of try to encapsulate what the Bible teaches and how that relates to your life. So it's sort of you know you get a story, biblical story, and and what does that mean to you? And that's pretty much day in and day out. And when we do our Bible studies. You know, most churches just simply read the Bible verses, sometimes try to extrapolate what what it was like for the people who wrote this, and then say, how does this relate to you? Hmm. So we miss to encapsulate some of the major, you know, solid parts of the Christian uh, theology, which is, for example, in Christian theology, you get what is called theology proper, the study of God, which is the fundamental study of any child of God, anybody who has come to believe, gone to church, the, if there is anything uh, that they should focus and study, uh, it would be the study of God, the one they call their father, right? Yeah. And so, because they're already in the church, they've accepted that, you know, God God is. And, and the second way is that you've got a text like uh, Romans chapter 1, 
which tells us uh, uh, from uh, um, you know this is Romans one. If you read from uh, verse nineteen and verse twenty, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. Verse twenty: For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. Mm. So the right the scripture writers didn't just simply say, we can know God by what we read in the Bible, by a study and reflection of theology proper. No, this, uh, Paul here writes, say, uh, that the created order, pardon me, the created order itself uh, is a place to study. Uh, you know, it's it's called general revelation. So you've got God's special revelation in scriptures. So somebody who can't study God within scriptures, then has got the other section, which is God's general revelation in nature. So looking at creation and being able to understand God from creation. So that's the second section of Christian theology. Uh, and, and then you get what is called natural theology. Natural theology is the reflection of the theologian uh, on general revelation. Okay, the formulation of arguments, the formulation of sort of philosophical argument, clear thinking ways to be able to understand God. Now, many many church leaders or pastors don't really do that. You know, don't go and try to look at natural theology to try to sort of go, okay, we well, see creation. How can we reflect on creation to understand God? And and when you ask him the question, okay, what do you mean by God? You know, it's very easy for a theologian to open the Bible and start to read what the Bible says about God. Okay? And so somebody might say, well, I, I don't believe in God. Or the person who believes in the Bible, yes, okay, well, it's all, it's all satisfactory. But how are they going to explain that to their relative or a friend who, who doesn't hold the Bible in high regard? So in natural theology, we, will, we might quote scriptures, but we don't quote them as inspired text. In natural theology, we quote scripture as historical document. All right, yes. Right? Yeah. So it's very different. The Christians is in his right to believe this is inspired text. But when I'm using natural theology and a formulation of arguments, uh, we use the biblical text not as inspired text, but as historical document. Right, yeah. So I wanted to start there so that I can give our listeners an out, so that, so that a way to know which section of Christian theology are we looking at, okay? Mm. So every time I engage somebody who's asked the question you've asked, I have a lot of resources within natural theology to be able to have it as a starting point to engage them on the discussion about God so that they don't have to say, but I don't believe in your Bible. Now we have creation, and we can reflect on creation using philosophy. Uh, by philosophy, I mean using clear thinking, yeah. just thinking clearly. Uh, every day in our everyday converse, conversation, we use logic. So by use of logic and creation as we reflect on it, we can formulate arguments and give reasons that will help us understand who this God is. That's where I'm going to start from. So mm. here is how, you know, many uh, you know theologians of the past, from people like St. Anselm of Canterbury, or, you know, people like Augustine, and even Greek philosophers 
And this is how they define God. And most people, when you say God, they have this idea that maybe it's some, you know, old guy in the sky with a long beard. You know, those Renaissance, yeah, you know, paintings. Yeah. You know, okay, they were nice people trying to encapsulate, but they, you know, by, by great artwork. But what it did is it actually damaged conceptually what we think of God. So mm. people have got, you know, you, you think people, people like oh, Spaghetti Monster or Sky Daddy, you know, they, they're trying to think of God as some sort of material, physical, uh, you know, entity somewhere in this in this universe, and and so and that's what they think about God. So when somebody says I don't believe in God, oh, oh you know, I'll, well they've they've also looked at Greek mythology and things like that, and those images of God yeah, up there with his you know Tritons and, and Zeus and all exactly. those sorts of people that that have been imaged in movies and other things. Yes, yeah. you know, and then you get even in our in our uh, you know uh, cu- you know Hollywood culture. Yeah, you know, you got uh, Jim Carrey. Uh, is it Carrie or Carrie? <laughs> yeah, Carrie. Jim yeah. Carrey with his Bruce Almighty, this kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, Morgan Freeman shows up days like God and, and, and so you get those kind of things. And it, 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 it gives conceptually the idea to many people when you think about God as it was some sort of physical entity, material entity, mm. uh, in the universe. Now, but the theologians of the past, like St. Anselm and Augustine, uh, and even some philosophers like Plato and Aristotle, they, they conceived and defined God properly as a, as God is classically defined in Christian theology. No theologian, Christian theologian, will say to you God is an old man with long beard sitting somewhere in the sky. Mm. So here's the definition. God is the greatest conceivable being. Mm. If you could conceive anything greater than him, then that would be God. In other words, there is no being greater than God. So this was the definition by St. Anselm of Canterbury. Now, God is the greatest conceivable being. Now, if he's the greatest conceivable being, he must have what we call a great making property. Okay, for example, if love is a, a great property, something great to have, then he must have it maximally, to its maximal extent. In other words, God must be perfect. Yes. So he must have love perfectly. He must have justice perfectly. Mm. If he's knowing, he must have knowledge perfectly, perfect knowledge. And if he's, he's got power, his power must be perfect. Okay? So God is the greatest conceivable being. And and if you start with that as the working definition, okay, what, what do you mean by God? God is the greatest conceivable being or the maximally great being. Okay? Mm. The necessary being. And I've even I've, I've I've used a number of terminologies here. And so I'll like to come back and explain those. And then we're going to show how do we get to know that such a being exists. That will be terrific. So in the meantime we're going to listen to Amy Grant and Rock of Ages. Rock of ages, clear for me, let me hide myself in thee, rock of ages, clear 
Beautiful classic there, Rock of Ages, Cliff, for me. So you're with uh, Samuel Chizichetti and Alita Robinson, and we're discussing who is God. And you just described God, Samuel, as the greatest possible conceivable being. No, the greatest conceivable being. Oh, the greatest conceivable being. Sorry, I stuck my own word in there. (laughs) (laughs) And then we we also talked about uh, when we're describing God to those that don't believe uh, in him or uh, and don't hold... um, much regard for the Bible, yes. Uh, that we can talk to God through what you've called natural theology, so which no, is what we see every day in the, in the everyday things around us. Yes, no, I don't say we can talk to God through natural. No, no, theology. no. Talk about Him. We can talk about yeah. God exactly. Yeah, sorry, so, did I say too? Yeah. <laughs> I apologize. Yeah. Uh, because, yeah, that's just because yeah. people can think, oh, I can talk to the tree. No, no, no. And I'm talking to God, right? <laughs> <laughs> that'd be fun. <laughs> that, that'd actually put a c- completely different thing on, spin on giving a tree a hug, wouldn't yes. it? <laughs> we can talk about God to those who do not understand the concept of God mm. by using natural theology. The reflection of the theologian on the natural world, formulating a logical reasoning and arguments to therefore reveal or understand who God is. It's mm-hmm. called natural theology. Now, 
And so uh, this is a, this is a, there's been a huge renaissance, uh, the resurgence, if you will, of natural theology uh, within within the Christian um, uh, thoughts uh, since since the sixties. Because you know up until you know eighteenth eighteenth century, nineteenth century, and even in the early twentieth century, uh, there had been a huge rise of atheism. This is why we, we starting to have the implication. Of you know people, for those who are listening who are you know quite tutored or people who are a lot more informed, they will remember the names like David Hume's, you know, David Hume, uh, atheistic philosopher Anthony, um, uh, what's his his name? He, he just uh, before he passed away, he came to believe there was God. Um, uh, his last name is gone, but it'll come. Um, so very, very influential philosophers, people that people like C.S. Lewis had to contend with. Yeah. And so the resurgence started, you know, people like C.S. Lewis, uh, Francis Schaeffer, uh, you know, and now you've had, you know, people like Alvin Plantinga or people like B- William Lane Craig, you know, uh, people like um, um, uh, J.P. Morland. There's a, a range of philosophers who have, you know, engaged themselves a lot with this section of Christian theology now, which is called natural theology. Why? Because it's necessary within the Western construct uh, that people had start to believe the belief in God was childish. Yes. It's, 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 it's extremely, it's quite extraordinary. You know, wherever I go, I said somebody, well, here I'm Samuel, I'm a Christian you know, church minister, and, um, you know, and, and they innocently say, yeah, when I was young, I used to go to church. I used to believe in that. But then I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and I cannot tell you how many times I hear that. Mm. Now, they're saying it innocently. They don't really realize the implications. So I then bring the implication to them. So you're saying that when you were young, you believed in this, that which I believe now is grown up. Yeah. When you grew up, you left it. Mm. So, by implication, I must still stuck in the childhood, childhood. place you used yeah. to be. Yeah. Okay. So that could be right, but then tell me what exactly did you grow out of that I'm still stuck in? Mm. In other words, what do you mean by God? What is the God that you grew up out of? And so then we start a very interesting discussion from there. And and most of them would not have heard the definition I've just given right now, which is the classical definition. Of Christian theism, that God is the greatest conceivable being. God is the maximally great being. And a maximally great being cannot, by definition, be a created being. Because if he was created, then that which created him would be maximally great. Than him. <laughs> That's right, yes. Yep. Okay? Yes. So you may say a term like necessary being. Yes. Uh, where do we get the word necessary from? We oppose the word necessary to the word contingent. Now, these are big words. Don't, don't let them sort of shake you. Contingent means something that depends on something else for its existence. Mm. Okay? Something that is caused by something else. So, let's say, for example, this microphone uh, was caused by the person who put it together with all the other components in nature, metal and and whatever, you know, all the components, and then a person who is what we call the efficient cause, okay, the efficient cause, 
uh, which is the person who put that material together. But this thing will have material cause, which means, for example, the the uh, the component in nature, from metal to you know whatever. Is, it's all is, been refined and, and it's all been exactly produced and manufactured and then assembled and designed, assembled and yes, made yes. into what we see now. Yes, yes. So it's like who is the, who's the guy who was the greatest artist who did the statue of David? Uh, Michelangelo. The, Michelangelo. So Michelangelo. I was looking for his name. Sometimes names just you know so. You know, uh, disappear. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> See now, the name of Anthony is come back. The atheist philosopher who, who debated uh, C.S. Lewis, Anthony Flew. Now there you go. His name F L E U, Anthony Flew. So it, sometimes names do that with me. So mm-hmm. like they run out and then they come back. So Michelangelo took a stone and carved the statue of David from. Yeah. So the uh, material cause of statue of David was the rock. Mm. And the chisel and whatever, uh, you know, Michelangelo used. But the efficient cause of uh, the statue of David was Michelangelo himself. Okay. So what I'm therefore saying is a necessary being is a being that is not caused by another. Mm. If he was caused by another, then that that which caused him would be. The necessary being. Yeah, yeah, would be greater than him. Than him, yes. Okay. Because there's this childhood question that, you know, Richard Dawkins was a very, very um, outspoken uh, atheist, very smart man, biologist, you know, very smart in his field. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. It mm. was very, very powerful, very, very appealing book read by a lot of people. And in, in that book, he said the core of his... The core of his argument was that, okay, even if we accept that the God exists, but then a bigger question looms. Who created God? Mm. Okay? And that was, for him, that was the biggest question. Yeah. And I looked at him like, what? and any other sort of smart people like, you know, um, um, say has another, another name that's gone, it'll come back. <laughs> uh, very smart people. He's a, he's a Scottish uh a mathematician, very, very smart, John Lennox. Uh, John Lennox, um, you know, thought, well, Richard, you're thinking of a created God. No one among the Christian thinkers or philosophers think of God as a created. No. Okay? Mm. Because he was making a, what they call a category mistake. Mm. Okay? The who created God, that sounds like a very childhood question. You know, when you were 12, one day Matthew asked me, He's only eight. He was a seven then, my son. And he's like, but God, but Dad, who created God? So at that age, the question is reasonable to answer. Mm. And But if the question wasn't answered when he asked at that point, and he grows up as a grown-up, be like, well, well, I can't possibly believe in God because if I believe in him, who created him? Right? The Christians don't believe in a created God because you've got two types of existence. You've got contingent ex- existence, things that exist because something has caused it to exist. And most things we interact with are those kind of stuff. Yeah. It exists because something has made it. Mm. Okay? And then there is a category of things that exist necessarily. In other words, they exist by the necessity of their own nature. You know, what that means is you cannot imagine that thing not existing. Mm. And so many uh, philosophers and mathemat- mathematicians, you know, Understand that things like numbers 
exists in that in a particular category. Think about a world without numbers. You can't think of a world without because if you had one car, then you have another car. At least if you have a car, then you have an, an, another car. You have two cars. Yeah. Three cars. I mean, if you had a tree, a tree, a tree, and a tree, that's you've already got four trees. So numbers seems, you know, sort of you you cannot not have them. So numbers and mathematical sets are considered to exist necessarily. So things that exist necessarily are things that you cannot imagine them not existing. You can't think of them as have a world, a possible world within which they don't exist. So in that sense, God exists as a necessary being. Why would we believe in a necessary being that becomes the question, right? So why, what reason do we have to believe that a necessary being exists? So I took this, this section to explain the terminology and clear the misunderstanding. Mm. So I said God is the greatest conceivable being, maximally great being, and he exists necessarily as opposed to exist contingently. He doesn't exist because he was made by something else. No. No. So that's where we're at. Mm. Now, what we're going to do is now, definitions matter because you asked me what do we mean by God. Yeah. Because if the definition is missed, then everything else is just simply going out of the window. They say in laws that whoever controls the definition in court will win the case. Yes. Yes, that's right. And I say in the same way, whoever cons- uh, whoever controls the definition in the public space has won the argument. Mm. So when we've let, as Christians, we have let the culture define God by an old man in the sky or, you know, something like spaghetti monster or, you know, whatever, Zeus. Your invisible friend. Your in- <laughs> invisible friend. Yeah. There you go. And, and that, it's become the popular thing. Mm. When you say God in, a, in, in public, just say pet God and ask person, what do you mean? What do you think I mean? They think you're telling a fairy tale. And, and so we have lost the definition. Yep. So we have to get back to get what exactly do we mean and what reason do we have to believe God exists? Well, on that note, we're going to listen to Consumed by Fire. I need you, God. What a great appropriate title. Fall. I hear your voice, God. God, I hear your voice. I... All the things I know now, I wish I knew. I tried so hard, did all I could do. Now I hear your voice, God. God, I hear your voice. So high, I'm gonna lift my hands up high. And I won't, and I won't lose sight. On you, lose sight. On
Listening to 105.1 Life FM Bendigo's Positive Choice, and we're tackling the God question today, which has been fantastic. Yes. Now, just before the break, you said Samuel that numbers were necessary, and yes. um, and I had these little thoughts going in my head, mm. um, which I'm I'm sure other people possibly had as well. Yeah. Um, in the sense of of numbers, I mean, you can be very general. You know, the tree there's not five trees; it's a forest. Um, I've got many cars. I've got several houses like there are general terminologies that can be used for that sort of thing i know it's not necessarily specific but we can we can give generalized sort of things around that sort of stuff so what were you actually meaning when you said that yes okay uh, very good um think about it this way that um the term terms like a lot in fair numbers mm. because you can't say a lot unless you had in mind numbers and so they are a substitute, but they cannot exist in vacuum. When you say forest, it infers a multitude of trees. Yes. Right? So you can use the term, try and say to the bank, um, I want a mortgage and I've got a lot of money. <laughs> uh, and by that you could mean $5, you could mean $10. Just give me a mortgage. I've got a lot of money. And the bank was like, how much money have we got? Mm. What I'm trying to say is you can get to a certain general point with that because it assumes the numbers, but you can't do get away for, without numbers at all. I can guarantee you that. Mm. So uh, somebody can say that, but you can't go very far without numbers. Uh, so, you know, whether it is the use of our economics or even the general terminology we use, they assume numbers. Mm. And so, but the, the, the bigger question would be, well, okay, well, if numbers are necessary, God is necessary, so, well, there are all the necessary beings that exist apart from God. Is that what you mean? Now, that's a deeper question which we will tackle once I've finished to give you, at least I'm going to give you five good reasons to believe that a maximally great being exists. Okay? Five line of reasoning that will show you that a maximally great being exists. But before I start to do that, let us build common ground. I want to build some common ground with our listeners, because this is what you do in natural theology. If we're going to present reason, argument, and logic, we must at least agree to certain set of things. And let me say, for example, without logic, logic is part of the fabric of the way we operate. 
you know. And we've got a number of, a set of laws, the laws of logic, that makes us understand when we talk with each other. Makes us understand communication, uh, make decisions, and so on and so forth, based on the laws of logic. And in that sense, there are at least three things, three ways we get to a conclusion that we can hold and be rational about it. Let me say that again. If you're writing this down, please do. If you're a Christian, it's, you know, and, and you've never known how to go about these things, these are worth writing. There are three fundamental ways we get to a conclusion that we are rational to hold. That we can hold and say, well, it's reasonable to hold that. Okay, the first thing, we use what is called deductive reasoning. Mm. Okay, deductive reasoning. Yeah. What's deductive reasoning? I'll give you a very generally non-syllogism, or at least a, a, a three-steps way of getting to the conclusion. All men are mortal. All men will die. Mm. Samuel is a man. And if I can show that all men could will die, and that's true, and that Samuel is a man, is not a tree or a piece of metal, mm-hmm. if I can show that, it follows the third step, that Samuel will die. And, and if you came to that conclusion, you would be rational to hold that. Mm-hmm. It's your all-time Socratic deductive argument. Mm-hmm. Okay? Yeah. So if somebody said, all men will die, Samuel is a man, therefore my expectation is someday Samuel will die, you won't say, well, what you don't think that? That's crazy. No, because we have a lot of evidence that all men will die, and that's not logical. So that's, it's called deductive argument. So deductive reasoning. Yeah. Now, we use inductive reasoning as a way of getting to conclusion. We do this, it's actually the, 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 the method that science uses the most is inductive. For example, how do you get to inductive reasoning? You take a sample. Let's say you've got, let's say, 25 million people in Australia. And you take a sample. Let's say I'm, I'm going to use an example of what's happening right now. You take, let's say, a sample of about 3 million people in Australia. Mm-hmm. And you give them a vaccine. Right? And then you observe and you see that the vaccine works just fine. And they're immune and they're protected. You conclude, you haven't vaccinated everybody, mm. but the size of the sample is big enough to conclude that not only if we gave the same vaccine to 25 million Australians, they will be fine. You'll be reasonable to hold that. Yeah. Okay? In other words, you go from an observed set of sample, mm. as long as the sample is big enough, and you, you account for the standard deviations and anomalies. But if the sample is big enough, you can then go from that sample and determine the general co- conclusion. And the conclusion will hold. You might have some exceptions, but the general conclusion will help. Yeah. Okay? But if you also took 3 million people and give them vaccine and find out that 50 or 40% of them are having sort of, you know, undesirable effect, then you can conclude, okay, well, if I give this to everybody, it will have undesirable effect. Just just, just to see what I mean. Yeah. Because I engage with people a lot of time and they they miss this one simple step. You, you've got a sample, how big is it, and can you, you know, infer, it's called the laws of inference. Mm. Can you infer from the size of your sample to the general conclusion and be rational? Okay? Makes yeah. sense? Yeah. Number three. The third way is what the detective use and is what actually in our even judiciary system, this one is used a lot. 
Uh, it's called inference to the best explanation. Okay, it's called abductive reasoning. Mm. Abductive. So remember, deductive, inductive, and abductive reasoning. Right. Abductive reasoning is when, uh, let's say, if you come if you come in the room and find that there is a corpse, somebody's dead, and you want to find what is the explanation for this. How did this person come to die? Okay. So there are four possible explanations there. Okay. Number one is that the person either died by natural causes. Mm -hmm. Just were sick and then died. Yeah. Everybody dies. Okay. Natural causes, they're dead. Or they could have died accidental death. Either they were doing something with a tool, could have gone, whatever. And by accident, they've killed themselves. That's the second explanation. Third explanation they could have died by suicide. They've taken their own life. Mm. Fourth explanation, it could be homicide. Somebody's killed them. Or, no, there's no fair. No, <laughs> but some say, oh, they're not died at all. I mean, okay, well, yeah. then you start to lose your, <laughs> your marble by then. Yeah, that's right. But what I'm saying is, so the rational person needs to look at the evidence mm. in the room and see which one of these explanations is the best explanation. Let's say, for example, you notice that the person had punctures. And so they've been stabbed. Okay? They had punctures, and the punctures were in their back. Mm. Okay? The first thing that goes is, well, natural causes, no. Nobody naturally died by being punctured in the back. Well, accidental death. Okay, can somebody accidentally punch, stab themselves five times in the back? Well, no. Okay? Um, so sad. Oh, can somebody go... Yeah, but then you've got to look at the places where the wounds are. If it's up there close to the, the neck or right in the middle of the back there, what's the length of the, the knife? How, if this punch the first time, see what I'm trying to say? Yes, yes. And somebody go, well, but if not, what if after that you notice the knife is not there? Mm. The knife is missing. You look for the knife everywhere. There is, in other words, the murder weapon is not there. Mm. So, you, if somebody still says to you, look, uh, regardless of the evidence, it must have died by natural causes, you're going to go, well, now you're starting to lose your, 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 your rational self. Yes. And so, these are four explanations are competing explanations, but the evidence must lead us to the best explanation. Mm. What is the best, the best explanation is the one that accounts for more of the evidence rather than less. Yeah. It must explain more of the data we have rather than less. Okay? It must have what they call explanatory scope, explanatory depth, and ex explanatory breadth. So, in other words, when, when, for example, you take a, a case, it's a reasonable person looking at it and listening to explanation and go, well... That uh, is the best explanation for the data we have. Mm -hmm. So these are the three ways we can come to a conclusion. You use deductive, you use inductive, or abductive reasoning. Okay? Now, having said that, let's now use these uh, methods to find whether a maximally great being exists. Yes. All right. Well, we will... We will do that straight after uh, a beautiful Hillsong worship song, King of Kings. In the darkness we were waiting without hope 
sing along can't help but sing along with that one love Brooke Fraser very very good so Samuel 
Yes. You were uh, talking about the different types of reasoning. Yes. Deductive, inductive and abductive. Yes. So you de- you've described those to us yep. as we are looking at things. Uh, <clears throat> we're seeing a situation and yep. we use a, a certain levels of reasoning yes. reasoning to figure out exactly what's happening to get in to that the space. Conclusion. Yeah. Yes. Get to that conclusion. Yes. So now we're going to apply that to God. Yes. So you notice that uh, what we've done during this program, which is what we do if you're doing natural theology, uh, is you notice the first thing that I did was to uh, define. So you've got to have a working definition. You have to dis- uh, dispel the misconception. So I, I, I said that God is the greatest conceivable being. Mm. God is the necessary being, maximally great being. So that's a working definition. Yep. And then we dispel the misconception that God is not your grandfather somewhere up there with, you know, long beard, uh, you know. Or, or your imaginary like a, friend. Yes, yep. or he's not like a spaghetti monster. <laughs> he's not a created being either. Like mm. Richard Dawkins asked the question, who created God? No, he's not a created being. So we remove those misconceptions. And then we establish the method. So you've got definition and method. Mm. And then you dispel the misconception. And now we're going to apply the methods to see how we get to the concept that we've just defined, right? Okay. Yeah. So let's do that. And and over over the next um, uh, you know a few weeks, I have five lines of arguments uh, that fit within this methodology that we're going to be to show that we have uh, you know I'd actually reason to say an overwhelming abundance of evidence that God exists. Yeah. So let's start with the first line of thinking. Uh, this one was uh, it was de- actually defended by by you know um, uh, a fourth century, if I'm not mistaken, fourth fifth century Muslim theologian called Hal Khazali, and it has been this particular uh, uh, like using deductive uh, reasoning. And been developed by William Lane Craig in recent times. He's done a lot of work on it. It's called the Kalam Cosmological Argument. Very, very simple, uh, you know, deductive argument. Mm. And that's the first one I'm going to start with. And then, you know, next time we'll look at the abundance of all the others we have. Mm. Okay. Um, The Kalam is very simple. It goes, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Yeah. Whatever begins to exist as a cause. Now, that's the first statement or premise. Mm-hmm. So we've got to check, what, is this true, that anything that begins to exist, if anything wasn't there and then, then it begins to exist, something must have caused it. Yes. Things don't just simply pop into being out of nowhere for no reason. Mm. At least that doesn't fit our experience. It doesn't fit what we know of the real world. We don't see horses pop into existence out of nowhere for no reason, or we don't see, you know, uh, you know, trees, you know, popping out of being, uh, or popping into being, you know, out of nowhere for no reason. If you see a tree, you go, somebody must have planted that, mm. and it must have come from a seed. Yeah. Even if somebody didn't plant it, the wind, the you know, bees, whatever, but there was a seed that caused that tree to pop out. Mm. Okay, and so if you see an airplane or a car, you don't think. Oh, wow, that just made itself. Wow, that's amazing. No. So this is a fundamental metaphysical principle. It's if things popped into being 
out of nowhere for no reason, it'll be worse than magic. Mm. Because even in, with magic, you need to have a magician. When a magician pulls a rabbit out of a hat, I like the way Bill Craig says it, uh, you know, at least you have the magician and the hat, right? In other words, even the rabbit that pops out of the you know, magician, well, of course, it's, it's trickery, but it's to say that you still have at least a magician and a hat to get the rabbit out of a hat. Mm. So things don't just simply pop into the existence out of no reason, out of no, nowhere for no reason. Mm. Things are caused by something. Whatever begins to exist has a cause. Very, very simple statement, and it's metaphysically true. It fits our experience. We know that. Premise two, or statement number two. The universe began to exist. The universe has not been here eternally. Now, this on this point, it used to be the biblical creationist believed that the universe had a beginning. Mm. They they read Genesis 1.1, in the beginning. Yeah, God created. In other words, the universe wasn't there all time, mm. and it just had a beginning, okay, in the beginning. Yeah. And at some point, the scientists started to think, well, maybe the universe is eternal. Anthony Flew, for example, you know, was one of those who thought, well, why can't the universe just be here forever? Why has it just been here? It's just a fact. Mm. Well, no, now we have, at least from a scientific point of view, evidence that the universe began to exist. Mm. So there is Alan Guth, Alexander Vilenkin, and um, uh, just is another name that just simply <laughs> ran away. Three, you know, a, a mathematician, a cosmologist, and a physicist who have got what is called the Guth Bohr Vilenkin theorem, which shows that any universe that is in a constant state of expansion, okay, could not be eternal in its past. Mm. It must have had a beginning point. Yeah. Okay. And so it is from cosmology right now to the biblical creationist, everybody agrees, not everybody, a large majority of scientists agree that the universe had a beginning. Yeah. And only that there are a lot of uh, you know, argument that can be presented philosophically for the impossibility of the the the, the infinitude of the past. Mm. Okay, and so I'm not going to go technically with, with with our listeners, but I just want to say there is a philosophical argument against the 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 eternality of the universe, and so to say, therefore, that, that the past must be finite. The past was finite, started at some point in time. The universe has a beginning. And so let's settle that. That statement is more likely true than its opposite. Then, it leads us to the last statement, which is, therefore, the universe has a cause. Mm. Yes. Let's do it again. Mm. Whatever begins to exist as a cause, it's like all men are mortal. Yeah. Okay. The universe began to exist, so Samuel is a man, and you cannot escape the conclusion that the universe must have a cause. Yes. Okay? Mm. Right. So, Whatever began to exist as a cause, the universe began to exist, therefore the universe got a cause. Now that we know the universe has a cause, now what we therefore do is to study what could be the cause of this powerful thing called the universe. Mm. What could be the cause? <laughs> well, I love, the, I love the fact that you've got the Big Bang, but then what caused the Big Bang? Exactly. <laughs> you know, so you still have to find yeah. the cause to whatever it is that you're putting forward. Exactly. Mm. One of my heroes, uh, Gregory Coco, always said, the Big Bang need a Big Banger. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
I like the that bang one. didn't bang itself, <laughs> no, that's right. right? So, <laughs> therefore, you can analyze what caused the universe, what banged the bang. Yeah. Okay? <laughs> so, to understand the cause, sometimes you just need to look at the properties of the cause, of the, of the effect, mm. to then understand the cause itself. Think about it. The universe is made of what? Matter. So this is a material world, matter, proton, electron, quartz, you know, molecules, atoms. Yep. Okay? So matter. And the universe is made of time. Mm. Okay? The universe is made of space. That's why it's expanding. Mm. And the universe is made of energy. Mm. Right? So time, space, matter, and energy. Okay? Now, so the cause of the universe, therefore, could not be material. Because it would be incoherent to say material or matter cause matter. Because before matter cause matter, matter should have existed to cause matter. Mm. So it's like somebody says, I'm my own mother. It's incoherent. Yeah. You would have had to exist to conceive yourself. Then to, so the, the cause of the universe couldn't be... Like, for example, the person who made the iPad that is standing, sitting in front of me here is not part of the iPad. It's not inside the iPad on the motherboard moving some little pieces. <laughs> no. Okay? Yeah. So what caused the, the effect, the cause is always often outside the effect itself. So the, the cause of the universe, therefore, is not matter, mm. which means immaterial. Yeah. That's what we mean by spirit. Immaterial. The cause of the universe is um, timeless because it made time. Time itself was made by that cause. And the cause of the universe is, uh, so we've got time, space, is spaceless. Mm. Okay? That's what we mean by God is invisible and is everywhere, spaceless, and extremely powerful. Okay? So this is your classical definition of God. God is timeless, Mm. spaceless. Immaterial yeah. and extremely powerful. Yes. So all I've done is a deductive reasoning, mm. and you can't go. But I don't believe in him. No, I'm not, I, I didn't ask you whether you believe whether it's your psychological state of mind. Like if you say all men die, somebody's a man, somebody will die. You can say, but I don't believe it. Mm. Well, he will die whether you believe it or not. That's yeah, what that's I'm trying to say. Yes. So if the first statements, two statements are true, the conclusion follows. Mm. So the greatest conceivable being. <laughs> You know, the maximally great being made the universe. Yeah. But you can say, well, but couldn't another impersonal cause cause the universe? Well, hey, let me help you before we finish, because this is at the core of the gospel. And so every cause, if, if, if the cause, uh, you know, makes the effect, and, and the cause is eternal, the effect is going to be eternal as well. But since we've noticed that the effect is not eternal, the cause must have therefore decided at some point in time to create. This is where we get to a cause that has got a will. Right. It's like a man sitting on a chair from eternity past can s- decide to stand up. He's got the will. And only persons have minds and will. Mm. And this is where you get to God is a personal creator of the universe who has a mind and a will who decided to create, is immaterial, is spaceless, timeless, and extremely powerful. Absolutely. Now that is where you start the gospel from. It is where you start the gospel from, and we're going to have a number of weeks that we're going to uh, continue this discussion. If you've got any specific questions, then uh, feel free to send them through.